0: Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. Through this series, we bring you trailblazing by South Asians and for South Asians. We're the torchbearers, sharing the stories of the leaders and innovators lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Today, I have the absolute distinct honor of welcoming Congressman Raja Murthy of the 8th District of Illinois to Trailblazers.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: So first off, I will have to congratulate you on your recent win and have to ask, I mean, how are you feeling in terms of your campaign success and of course the national outcome with the world wind it's been?
1: Thank you for recognizing my victory. I ended up winning with seventy-three percent of the vote in a district that's not seventy-three percent Democrat. And so I'm proud of the fact that I won the support of a lot of Republicans, but also independents and of course Democrats. And I got reelected to my third term, so I went three for three on November three, Simi. and that same night, obviously uh, Joe Biden uh, got elected our president. Unfortunately, though, we did lose uh, some of my House colleagues, and the Senate uh, majority is still in doubt. So it was overall uh, a good night, but it was a there was some mixed results. In my personal case, it was an outstanding victory.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And congratulations again. I'm sure it's pretty crazy to reflect back now, given that this will be your third term in Congress, but you actually began your career studying engineering at Princeton, which was encouraged by your dad, I believe, who was an engineer. What encouraged you to pivot to the public policy world?
1: So I had an inkling that I wanted to go into uh, government at some point and do something uh, in the way of public service I didn't know in what form it would be. I didn't know uh, when it would be. But, you know, essentially, it's it's shaped by my own life circumstances. And, you know, just the enormous gratitude that I and my family feel to the government of the United States. And so that really, more than anything else, uh, inspired me to want to try to give back. Of course, uh, my father said to me, Raja, you can do anything you want to do in life. And I said, really? And he said, yes, you can be a a civil engineer, a mechanical engineer, an electrical engineer, a <laughs> computer engineer or a doctor. And so I ended up you know saying, "Really, wow, that's amazing." And then I got a, a bachelor's in mechanical engineering, which was actually the right thing to do, and it, I, I really enjoyed the study of engineering, and I had a, a modest aptitude for it, I think, you know partly be, based on my parents and my upbringing. then I obviously went a different course over the long term.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to spend a little bit of time on what you're speaking to around your parents and your upbringing. I know that you moved from India when you were very, very young, I believe three months old, and you guys lived in public housing projects, you were on food assistance. I mean, how did that shape your policy agenda when you ran for office?
1: Well, I think that it's 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 fair to say that it had a powerful impact because you know, from, from a very young age, after my, you know, parents established themselves in Peoria, Illinois, and, you know, ultimately entered the middle class, we were able to survive and, and prosper in the United States because of a lot of assistance. But it wasn't just the, you know, the food assistance or the public housing. Um, it was kind of the access to an excellent public education, and all the benefits of membership, so to speak, in the greatest club in the the world, which is being a permanent resident of the United States. Because of that, I think that we essentially worshipped at the altar of uh, America every night at the dinner table. It became a religion to celebrate America and everything about it and its government. And I remember my father said, you know, think of the greatness of America and whatever the two of you do, my brother and me. Just make sure this country is there for the next families who need it. And so that became like almost like a mantra for us every night. Yeah. And that became the North Star of my personal compass.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a sentiment that a lot of people are hanging on to even amidst what's been a pretty tumultuous time in this country I mean, as someone that you know has has served in Congress for some time now and in public office for longer with your experience as Special Assistant Attorney General of Illinois and on the House Oversight Subcommittee, I mean, what are your priorities looking like today with the state that this country is in?
1: If I had to describe what my aspiration is, I very much believe in the politics of purpose and prosperity. How do we make sure that government works smartly and effectively to help people to realize whatever their God-given potential is, however they define it, and to make sure everyone can get onto the up escalator of the economy, whether they are poor, whether they're middle class, or whether they're starting a business and growing it. And then the corollary of that is making sure everyone has access to that up escalator, regardless of where they come from, or the color of their skin, or how many letters there are in their name. They're 29 in mind, Simi, at last count. And so I have a, a number of policy prescriptions that fall under that general agenda. But those are the objectives of what I try to accomplish every day along with my staff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Again, I, I want to check a little bit further back in your career. I mean, I imagine to some degree that former President Obama had an impact on your political career tra- trajectory, just given that after graduating from Harvard Law, you spent some time working on his early campaigns. I mean, do you have any poignant memories with him that just really stick with you to this day?
1: I worked on his congressional campaign, the 1999 2000 timeframe. And, you know, it, it didn't go the way that he expected or wanted. And then in 2002, I remember distinctly, you know, meeting him in his law office. So at that point, he was working in a a small a Chicago, I guess you could call it a civil rights law firm, but it's really a house. It was a house and he, his office was literally in the attic of that house. And so I went up there. It's like, I think it was the middle of summer and it was like a hundred Easily 100 degrees or 90 <laughs> to 100 degrees. He's sweating bullets while we're talking. It got to my uh, attention that you know he was basically saying, look, I have to pay off my credit card bills from the last race in, in 2000. He still had, I don't know, I think maybe thousands, maybe $10,000 worth of credit card bills that needed to be paid off. And so he was working those off. And I remember he got a call as we were talking and it was somebody who was the victim of domestic abuse. And, you know, basically, you know, he he spoke, obviously he was her lawyer and he was just talking about, you know, how, how we need to move forward, how she needs to stay safe. And I don't think that was a paying case. <laughs> I think that was a pro bono matter uh, among the other matters that he took up and he had a briefcase it was the ugliest briefcase i've ever seen it was like <laughs> a little bit shredded like a hundred papers sticking out and and those were the like the final exams that he needed to grade from his class at the university of chicago law school that he was teaching so to say that he was juggling responsibilities is an understatement but what it really illustrates is here's a person that's You know, dedicated to public service, dedicated to helping people, trying to put food on the table for his family and family, and trying to pay down a lot of bills, which is kind of a middle class life. And so that is something that stays with me because you need people in public service who can relate to the struggles and the challenges that ordinary people face. And that way they know. What needs to be done, and that's really important.
0: Absolutely, and it's interesting because I, I know you're speaking to how you know the first race that you were involved with with him didn't go quite the way that he wanted. And you know, as in most trailblazers that I've even brought on on this podcast, everyone's faced faced some losses in the early innings of their career. And in your case, you know, you lost the race of Illinois comptroller in 2010 by less than one percent of the vote. You in 2012, you actually lost the race for the seat that you sit in today. I mean, how did those losses shape your 2016 run? Like what motivated you to keep going? I
1: didn't lose, Simi. I took the silver medal. The way I look at it is if you're going to bounce back from adversity, you have to look at it as you you, you might win or you might learn. And I had to learn quickly kind of what my kind of areas for development were. Now, the way in which you take a loss, so to speak, uh, really matters. I give a lot, of, a lot of advice to a lot of candidates who run for office. And, and one of the pieces of advice that I give is, obviously, now that you're in the race, you're seeking to win. But regardless, you need to end the race with your head held high, and you need to be able to live with the person in the mirror. So that means you did everything that you possibly could. You handled yourself with grace you didn't demean or disrespect your opponent, and you didn't demean yourself. And if you do those things and you realize that politics is a relationship game, not a transaction game in the sense of how you deal with people that uh, help you or that you help, then you live to fight another day. And as long as you learn the lessons of you know, what might have tactically or strategically went wrong in that race – you will do better the next time, and so I had two losses to start, two silver medals, and then now I've won the gold six times in a row. Yep. So I'm six six and two. As Senator Dick Durbin told me, you know, Raja, you took the uh, Dick Durbin route to Congress. He he lost his first three races before he first got elected to Congress, and then he said, "Good news is you haven't lost since." And I think that's something that we should all keep in mind, even after we bounce back from adversity.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, to that end, I mean, in 2016, you did become the first Indian American representative from Illinois. What did it mean for you to be able to represent your state and community in that way at the national level?
1: It's very special. And it's, it's actually, it's something that maybe doesn't hit you until you see the reaction and response from other people once you see it on the faces and in the messages and the greetings that you get, especially from people in India, by the way, you kind of realize that your campaign or your victory or your holding office is inspiring other people. And that causes you to kind of take your responsibilities even more seriously. And it reminds me to also help to mentor the next generation of people who are entering public service and to encourage more. That's really, really important. Not to mention basically trying to help as many people as possible, knowing that it's a privilege to serve. It's not, it's not your right to be a congressman or anything like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and speaking to, to that point on mentorship, what sorts of advice do you try to give to you know potentially other young South Asians who are interested in running for public office and paving a path like your own?
1: Every person has their own unique journey. But what I say to people is you might uh, watch that TED Talk by Sir Ken Robinson. It's one of the most viewed TED Talks. It had like 25 million views. I don't watch a lot of TED Talks, but I watched that uh, a long time ago. One of the things that he said that stuck with me is, I think the goal in life is to find out what you're passionate about and what you're good at and find the intersection of that. And that's where you can really achieve excellence. And I tell young people, especially coming out of college or their post-secondary education, first try to achieve professional excellence, however you define that, so that you can become self-sufficient and independent. It's really important to uh, establish yourself and live in the real world. Pay bills, have a boss, have deadlines, have clients, and quite frankly, have a family if that's what you aspire to, because that comes first, in my opinion. Um, You have to take care of your personal responsibilities as well as your professional responsibilities. You don't want to start running for office out of your parents' basement or something like that. It's just, it just doesn't make any sense. Then once you get rooted in your community and you kind of have a sense of what's going on in your community and the world around you, then you try to ascertain like, what do you really care about? What is it that really floats your boat in the sense that you would work on this issue regardless of what responsibility you had, what leadership role you had, whether you were a foot soldier or whether you were the leader of the movement. Do whatever you can to advance that cause. Once you do that, people really recognize it and a lot of doors open for you. And you can do that in any number of ways. You can be in appointed roles. You might run for office. I encourage people to think about that as well. But the main point is think about a cause bigger than yourself, work on that, and then exercise those service and leadership muscles so that you know when it's your time to take the next level of responsibility.
0: I think that makes a ton of sense and is something that I even try to keep in mind about establishing myself before I get a little bit carried away about what my ultimate career trajectory might look like. And it's interesting to your point on causes. I mean, obviously, you've championed a lot of landmark legislation across both sides of the aisle relating to causes like the growing skills gap, the opioid epidemic, especially among young people. How have you thought about How the different parties in Congress and and just broadly in national politics are going to work together to solve some of America's biggest issues?
1: I think it really takes identifying the, if you think of a Venn diagram of the issues that, you know, maybe Republicans and Democrats each care about, figuring out the intersection of that and working on those first. This is something, you know, I'm, I'm going to be meeting with Speaker Pelosi soon. This is something I feel passionate about and and advocate for, which is right now the American people desperately want things to get done. And I think that's what the election results spoke to. They're not so interested in messaging points or rhetoric. They're not super interested in people going into their corners. They are interested in compromise and Achieving whatever can get done that would advance their priorities, and then later on dealing with some of the more thorny issues. But that really only happens through those initial wins, so to speak.
0: No, that makes a ton of sense. And hopefully, we'll see some progress in that realm as the transition finally kicks mm-hmm. off. <laughs> So obviously, it's been, I mean, a robust couple of years for South Asians in in public office, the paradigm example being Kamala Harris, the first Black and South Asian woman being nominated to the role of vice president, but also you and a number of other representatives being part of what I believe you call the Samosa Caucus. Can you speak a little bit to what that experience has been like?
1: Well, Kamala is one of us, one of the Samosa Caucus, so I'm not going to let her go. Uh, (laughs) Incidentally... You know, she achieved history in three regards, right? She was the first woman, the first Black, and the first South Asian vice president. So she really hit the trifecta, so to speak. In terms of the Samosa Caucus, you know, it's basically the four of us in the House of Representatives of Indian origin. And interestingly, we were all elected the same night Donald Trump was. Wow. Unfortunately, for the last two election cycles, we have not grown and that's kind of a long-term objective but we represent all parts of the political spectrum within the Democratic Party and we really get along pretty well but we you know have different kind of policy priorities and so it's really good that there is that diversity even within our ranks uh, but most importantly i think that hopefully we we continue to inspire others to enter public service, and we kind of come together when it counts for certain priorities that have been ignored in the past for the South Asian or the broader Asian American, or really the entire community, such as immigration. Immigration, by the way, is one of the issues that I care deeply about and which I think represents what I call the killer competitive app that the United States has that very few countries possess. And we as South Asians, Indian Americans, et cetera, can very passionately, poignantly, and powerfully speak to the issue of immigration as being a huge win-win-win for us, people who are already here in America, and of course the country as a whole.
0: And I want to spend some time on that because obviously this is called South Asian Trailblazers. I mean, what sort of impact has the South Asian community had with respect to your campaigns, with respect to how you think about policies? Can you share a little bit about that?
1: They've had a huge impact. You know, my own uh, constituency comprises around 750,000 people, so three quarters of a million people. But uh, between eight and 10% of the constituency is South Asian origin, uh, which is one of the highest concentrations in the country. Of course, the vast, vast majority are still white Caucasian, but the interesting thing is that the South Asian community, whether they're Indian origin, Pakistani, Bangladesh, Sri Lankan origin, have really established themselves and have established a good reputation and name, so to speak, for the community, such that the, the vast majority of the constituency is very comfortable electing an Indian American to Congress even when they can't pronounce my name by <laughs> the way and that I'm not joking they they literally cannot pronounce my name and they just know me as Raja at this point these same south Asians have uh, supported me in other ways they've worked on my campaigns we had a lot of volunteers working on my uh, past campaigns they've donated to my campaigns been extremely generous really everywhere but most importantly They have only asked for one thing, and that is be the best congressman that you can be. And in that request is kind of an eloquent appeal to the ideals of America. What does America represent? Make sure that we remain a land of immigrants, the free, the brave, the proud, the generous, the compassionate, the people that we were attracted to when we came to this country. And that, that appeal is really what animates and motivates me every day.
0: And to that end, I mean, it, I think that's a testament to the fact that the South Asian constituency is becoming even more important in the US day by day. What do you say to South Asians who are still a little bit reluctant to get involved in politics and only concerned about issues that might directly affect them on a day-to-day basis?
1: Well, there's this old you know, saying in Washington, D.C., which is if you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. During these last four years, I think each and every one of us can point to issues that were on the menu, that we thought were previously off the menu, or that would not be relitigated, whether it's an issue of immigration, which we just talked about, or whether it's with regard to public education and the need for excellent public schools for every child in America, whether it's the issue of what are the norms that should guide a dialogue or a discourse in our government and in our politics? Are we just going to allow for the the wholesale coarsening of the way that we talk to each other? The name calling and the mistreatment and everything else that goes with it. Those are the things that are on the ballot every time when you go to the polls that sometimes you know, our South Asian American brethren may not see directly, but now I think they're realizing. And I think their, their numbers are increasing in terms of the people that are uh, number of people who are voting, their frequency, their willingness to vote in primaries and in general elections and at the local level. That's very important. And I think it's it's improving.
0: Well, thank you so much for that sentiment and, and those thoughts, Congressman. I mean, I know we're all really excited to see where your career heads next. And again, thank you so much for joining me on Trailblazers today.
1: Well, Simi, great to see you again. And I just want to tell everybody out there, please get involved. We need you now more than ever. We need your talents and energy and and, and wisdom and ideas. If there's ever a time to act, and to engage in public service, it's now. So thank you.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
1: Okay. Take care.
0: This is a podcast from Trailblazers Media. For more content on South Asian trailblazing, follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram and Facebook.